Hey, it's Pastor Sam. I want to thank you for tuning into this week's sermon, which is from our current sermon series called Our Aim, as we look at the mission of Sacred City Church, which is to make disciples, plant churches, and renew the city. You can find more information about Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois at scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Nehemiah 13, verses 4 through 31. Now before this, Elishib the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time, I asked to leave the king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Elishib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the the courts of the house of God, and I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders and they were cleansed, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them. So the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of grain, wine and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasures over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Pedadiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan, the son of Zachar, son of Madaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also, who lived in the city, brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing that you are doing, profaning on the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? And did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning on the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders that they not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates, that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come on and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. 
In those days also I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehadiah, the son of Elishib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore I chased him from me. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering, offering and appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O oh my God, for your good. This is the word of the Lord. This is the end of an era for us as we conclude the book of Nehemiah. Um, we've, we've come a long way. The story of Nehemiah starts out with the city of Jerusalem in ruins. God's people had gone through a season of unfaithfulness. He rose up uh, the Babylonian empire to come in and to crush, to destroy the walls of the city of Jerusalem, the homes, the temple, defiling the temple, the very place where God dwelt himself. And then they hauled God's people off into exile. That's how the story begins. And, and God sparks up a desire. We see it in two phases, one through Ezra and another through a man named Nehemiah to go back to the city of David and to rebuild the ruins, and we've seen through the story, little by little, progress is being made, that they've accumulated momentum and things are actually happening and the city is being rebuilt. The walls have been, well, it started out with the temple first. They rebuilt the temple and then some of them started to put up these little shanty homes and then they worked on the walls of the city. And last week, we saw, maybe two weeks ago, we saw the city being repopulated. God had done the work that he put on Nehemiah's heart. They, they carried out the mission and were working toward it. And last week, we saw a very exciting chapter. The people of God gathered in celebration to, to it just joy and, and gladness for what the Lord had accomplished through the last few months of their existence. It was a high point, very, very much a high point in the story of God in the history of God's people. And if you like Hallmark movies that offer feel-good endings, you would think that chapter 12 is where the story would end, right? Uh, joy, gladness, up and to the right, rainbows and daisies, and everybody linking arms and singing kumbaya. It's just a sweet moment. And if that's what you're hoping for, then you're going to be a little bit disappointed to see how the story of Nehemiah actually ends. Because as we conclude, the story of Nehemiah and end with chapter 13, it really does make you wish that Nehemiah ended with chapter 12 instead. 
Because what we see in chapter 13 is that everything that was going well for the people of God starts to unravel. Now, it might seem like a letdown in some ways, and, and, and you can say, yeah, it would be a bummer. It would have been nice to see the people of God sustain this momentum that they've created, this reformation that's been underway. It would have been so exciting to say, yeah, we're, we're building on that. They just kept moving, kept trucking away. But that's not the case. And so, yeah, it might be a little bit sad, but let me, my, my, what I wanna do this morning is show you that if the finale of Nehemiah were actually the, the fairy tale ending that some of us hope for, if it were really rainbows and daisies, it would actually be bad for us. If the story of Nehemiah ended on a high note, it would be bad for us. So I wanna show you why the story of Nehemiah has to end the way that it does. Not, not just that it has to, but it's inevitable that the story of Nehemiah ended the way it does. And as we look at that, I also want to, to just inject us with hope because we can be certain that the story of the church will not end in the same way. So if you would open up your Bibles with me to Nehemiah chapter 13. We're gonna do a little bit of, of bouncing around. We're, we're not gonna work straight through the thing. And so uh, we're gonna make a couple of passes through it. But I wanna show you that, that through the whole commotion of what's going on here, there's a lot going on here. Really, the thing that we, we need to see is that the Reformation continues. The people have been coming to the word of God, studying the word of God, being convicted by the word of God, turning from their sin and walking in obedience. And God has been building a culture within his, his own people that it is glorious. The Reformation, they're, they're being reformed according to the word of God. And here again in verse one of chapter 13, we see another glimpse of this Reformation. We see the Reformation continues. And this time, the people of God are gathered together. They're reading from the book of Moses. Um, likely they're in, actually, they're probably in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verses two through six. So we actually know the, the passage that they're studying. Somebody's getting up and preaching, and this is the, the, the pericope of the day. And in this passage, there, there makes reference, and, and Deuteronomy 23 makes reference to a situation that happened back in Numbers chapter 22 with a, a prophet by the name of Balaam. Here, let's read. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And it was written, it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned that curse into a blessing like God tends to do. And so here we have this, they're reading this passage and all of a sudden the people hear, verse three, as soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So they read the word of God they, they experience this conviction of what's been instructed back in Deuteronomy 23, where, where the Lord said, you, you cannot allow uh, uh, an Ammonite or Moabite to e ever enter into the assembly of God. Now, the reason for this is a couple things. The, the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, um, I think we read this last week in our, our Feast of Flourish Bible reading plan, I think Genesis 18 or 19, where we find out who the, the Ammonites and the Moabites are. They, they are actually Lot's inbred family. So Lot and his daughters, uh, two daughters, created this, these two family trees. They were kind of messed up. And uh, 
there has been enmity between the Ammonites and the Moabites, uh, those two together, against the Israelites, the people of God. And, and this has played out in several different scenarios as you read through the scriptures. But in this specific moment, the, the Ammonites and the Moabites have hired Balaam to curse Israel. They see that Israel is prospering. They, they think that uh, Balaam is a prophet for hire who they can pay off a little bit. He'll come in, he'll pronounce a curse upon God's people and that will actually take effect and then things will start to unravel for them. But through this whole process, God won't allow Balaam to curse Israel. God's people. It's actually a fascinating story. It's well worth the read. And because of this activity of the, the Ammonites, the Moabites, where they're trying to curse Israel, God flips it on them. And actually, this is part of the covenant that God made with Abraham, that he would bless those who bless him and his offspring and curse those who curse Abraham and his offspring. And because of this, because they didn't come with bread and water as Israel had need, they they didn't express generosity or benevolence. In fact, the opposite, they're trying to curse them. God excludes the Ammonites and the Moabites from the assembly of his people. And what we're seeing here is that this command in Deuteronomy 23, Numbers 22, has been uh, uh, disobeyed. It's been either forgotten or, or, or intentionally disobeyed. And now, as they survey the assembly, they find Ammonites and Moabites among the assembly. Now, the, the positive of what we see here is even though they, they've rebelled against God's word, they're, they're not obeying God's word. The positive, the silver lining of the situation is upon hearing the word of God read, they are convicted of their sin and immediately they repent, right? We saw that in verse three. As soon as the people heard the laws, they separated from Israel. Now, this is not a, this is not a racially motivated thing. This is not about the color of, of skin. This is not about ethnicity. Um, we see this over and over throughout scriptures. What this is about, whenever you see Israelites separating themselves from other clans, it always has a relationship religious connotation every time. It's always about religious purity and not syncretizing. And as we've seen in other places, and which will get brought up later on, that tends to happen. And so the the positive part of this is that we see the Reformation continuing. We see God's people going back to the word of God, and it's very encouraging. And it almost appears as if, uh, if you just stop it with, with verse three, that things are going to continue in this positive direction. But in chapter six, there's a major change. The, uh, the momentum that has been building shifts. It, it, it downshifts uh, and starts messing up the di- dynamics. Now, the, the thing that makes the change is that Nehemiah returns to Persia to visit King Artaxerxes. Now, at the beginning of the story, Nehemiah was the cupbearer to King Artaxerxes. He went and pled that he could return. And he said that I will come back and continue to fulfill my duties as the cupbearer. And and King Artaxerxes let him go. And then now he's returning. He's keeping his word. He's returning to King Artaxerxes. And in his absence, things start to unravel in Jerusalem. The people of God start to Backslide. As soon as the foot gets taken off the pedal, it's like they slam it in reverse and just drift back. And what this tells us is that a society is capable of crumbling at a quicker rate than a city's infrastructure. The walls of the city have been built. The framework is there. People are moving in. But at the same time, there is a religious and moral denigration that's taking place. It's spiraling down the tube, and the rest of chapter 13 shows five different scenarios of J- Jerusalem's societal collapse. 
So let's, let's work through these real quick. The first scenario, the first scenario of backsliding begins not with the common man of, of Jerusalem, not your average nominal uh, Jew, but it takes place with a high priest. One of the chief leaders of the people of God sets a trend that will inevitably be a domino effect that, that starts spilling everybody out. We see this, chapter four and five. Uh, we're introduced to Eliash, Eliashib. Uh, and what he does is he's got, he's got a cousin, an uncle, I don't know. He's related to a guy named Tobiah, who we actually met before. Uh, Tobiah was actually one of Nehemiah's arch enemies, an enemy to Jerusalem, an enemy to the Israelites. He was trying to sabotage this whole rebuilding project. But as soon as Nehemiah leaves the scene, Elijah, Eliashib um, starts to call in favors for his, his cousin, cousin Tobiah. And he turns a temple storeroom, a, a, a facility that was meant to, to retain the oils and grains and offerings of God's people to be given to God. And he takes that storeroom and he empties it and turns it into an office for Tobiah. And the scripture says that this is an evil thing. Now, not just a, a bad thing, but an evil thing. There, there's a moral evilness to this situation. And you see this because here in the place where um, that is meant for God, a place that is meant to be a storehouse of offerings to God now becomes a lounge for a God-hater. Right there in the temple. Now, that's the first thing. The second thing is that we see is that the temple servants have left their post. You move further down, uh, this is verse 10. The temple servants have left their post because they're not getting paid. And, and we can deduce that there are a couple reasons why they're not getting paid. Number one is that the people of Israel have stopped tithing. In fact, um, this passage in, in uh, Malachi, very famous passage um, of Malachi. Nope, yep, Malachi, sorry. Sometimes I get my prophets mixed up. Malachi, um, that talks about man robbing God. He says, well, man robbed God, yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you? Well, here it is. This is, the, this is the moment in time where the prophet Malachi is speaking into the corruption of the people of Israel. They, they just stopped tithing. He says, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? You are cursed with a curse, for you are robbing me, the whole nation of you. And then he commands them, bring the full tithe into the storehouse that there may be food in my house, right? Because Tobiah, again, he's, he's emptied the storehouse and thereby put me to the test, says the Lord of hosts, if, if I will not open the windows of heaven for you and pour down for you a blessing until there is no more need. He goes on, all the nations because of this will call you blessed for you will be a land of delight, says the Lord of hosts. So the people have started tithing. God sent a prophet to, to convict them of this, but we have not seen any momentum. We've not seen this reformation take place. So that's the first reason why we see the tithes or why the servants have left the post because they're not getting paid. People stopped giving. But the other part was that the distribution, like the logistical, okay, the, the, the temple received their gifts. Now we gotta figure out how to disperse them to the appropriate people. Well, the distribution process had been neglected. The people who have been tasked with that have been slacking on the job, whether it's by just natural greed where they want more and to neglect other people or some other cause, the tithing had stopped. 
Now, this is striking um, because what's said here is, is that um, at the very end of, of this, this passage, um, it says that Nehemiah asked the question, why is the house of God forsaken? Why is the house of God forsaken? And if you think back to the very end of chapter 10, uh, this is where the people of Israel are making a, a covenant renewal. The thing that they promise to do, the, the last charge is, we will not neglect the house of the Lord. And here they are, neglecting the house of the Lord. Now, the third area of backsliding that's discovered is, uh, is as Nehemiah later walks through the land of Judah. We see this in verse 15. Um, in those days, I saw Judah people treading winepress on the Sabbath and, may, and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. The people of God are not observing the fourth commandment to honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. Instead of resting, as God has modeled in, in, the, in the prototype of creation, work six days, rest one, they've just kept working, grinding through, trying to get that dollar. Again, this is not just a bad thing, but this is an evil thing. The, the, the descriptor word on this scenario is evil. It is an evil thing that they are doing, and, and it's because they are profaning the Sabbath. Verse 17 what is this evil thing that you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way? Did not our God bring all this disaster? He's talking about the, the, uh, the exodus that happened, or not the exodus, the, the uh, uh, what am I thinking of? Uh, the exile that happened. Did, did not God not bring this disaster on us, on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. So what's being said here is, historically, when we neglect the Sabbath, things go poorly for God's people. When we don't honor the Sabbath, when we don't keep it holy, when we make money the chief love of man and pursue the dollar, things go badly for God's people. So that was the third thing. Now, after forsaking the temple, after neglecting the tithes and robbing God, after, after um, defiling the Sabbath... The fourth thing that we see here that Nehemiah comes back to is the people of Israel are forsaking their heritage. You see this in verse 23. In those days, this is Nehemiah talking, in those days I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashad, Ammon, those are the Ammonites, and Moab. Again, uh, they're not, the, the, these foreigners are not just hanging out in the periphery of the assembly. They, they've integrated into the, the people of Israel. And, and what has happened because of this, verse 24, and half of the children, so the next generation, spoke the language of Ashad, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. So here we have this, this loss of, of corporate identity. The people of Israel are losing their kids to foreigners. They're not pursuing generational faithfulness so much so that the people of Israel, this, this next generation, don't even know how to read the Torah. They don't even know how to talk and understand what's being taught from the Torah. Now, again, going back to this, this people group, this, this discord that happens, um, it's always a religious thing. It's not ethnically motivated. It's not about skin color. It's nothing about that. It's always about religious convictions. Marriage with pagans will always compromise Israel's religious identity. 
How can you you perpetuate a God-fearing culture if your kids can't understand the word of God? So the people have forsaken their heritage. And the last episode of backsliding here, the fifth one, uh, gets pointed out in verse 28. This one may be a little bit harder to understand, but let me unpack it for you. What we have here is Eliashib, the high priest, who's already, we've already seen him mess up with Tobiah. Uh, we see another big fl- uh, flount, flunder, fl- these words are just escaping me today. We see another big screw up, all right, with Eliashib, where he endorses this, this marriage between one of his grandsons and Sanballat, Uh, Another enemy who is buddies with Tobiah who hated what Nehemiah was doing in rebuilding the ruins. They have given their offspring together to be married. And in that, there has become a corruption in the lineage of the high priests. Okay, so here Eliashib, his grandson is now not pure. He cannot rightfully as the scriptures articulate, serve in the office of priest, yet he is anyway. Again, here's another vision of syncretism. You have a a half pagan who's commissioned to lead worship. Now, which direction are they leading God's people? We don't know. Uh, Nehemiah does know because he eventually is gonna take some pretty significant action. But in doing this, what we're told is that that they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priest. So those five things, all five of these scenarios show a breaking of the covenant renewal that was made just months ago, right? In recent history, back in chapter 10, they said, here's all the things that we're gonna do and here's all the things that we're not gonna do. And almost every single one of those things, they have broken the covenant. And this is tragic. This is sad. Because, you know, if we're being optimistic about it, it looks like the people of God had figured some things out. It looks like they were generating momentum. They were staying the course. But in the absence of Nehemiah, things unravel. As a dog returns to vomit, so does man return to his folly. It's inevitable. But the good thing for the people of Israel is that that after a bit of time um, in Persia, God sends Nehemiah back, back to his homeland. And as he comes back, he brings with him a series of course corrections. Now, the encouraging thing about this is that that Nehemiah could have landed in Jerusalem, landed as in he flew there, he didn't fly there, he walked there. Um, But Nehemiah could have showed up back in Jerusalem, saw what was going on, all the dysfunction, all of the the mindlessness that's been taking place, could have looked at it, threw his hands up, and said, I quit. That's it. I've, I've laid it out on the line. I, I've worked so hard to get us to this place, and the people have squandered, and now it's somebody else's problem. He could have done that. But what we see instead is Nehemiah's zeal for the Lord just continue to shine through as it has previously in the story. We see Nehemiah land, and he is a man of action and of prayer. One commentator says that we see Nehemiah's single-minded, utterly frank, and godly through and through leadership. So he lands on the ground, and the first thing that we see from Nehemiah is we see he's angry. 
which is, it's right for Nehemiah to be angry. It's a righteous anger. He sees what Eliashib has done. He sees the evil of this man back in verses eight and nine. It says, and I was very angry and I threw the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. So what's he doing? He's cleaning the house. He takes the desk to the lawn, takes the chair to the lawn. He takes all of his books to the lawn. He doesn't care. Let's get him out of here. He does not belong in the house of the Lord. And then Nehemiah works to restore the temple, to, to bring back in the offerings, to fill the storehouse. Now, the next thing he sees is the temple workers are gone. So what does he do? He, he confronts them. He says, guys, you have a job. The Lord has assigned you to a task. Stick to it. Be faithful. And he calls them back in verse 10 and 11. He said, I confronted the, the, the officials and said, why is the house of the Lord forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. And then he brought in Judah uh, to, to bring the tithe, the grain, the wine, the oil and, into the storehouses. And then he appointed treasurers over the storehouses. We're told that they are respectable men. They're, they're considered reliable and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Right, course correction. And as Nehemiah takes action, He also turns to prayer. Verse 14, remember me, oh my God. Now this is a series of like three of these breath prayers that we see here. Where it's, remember me, oh my God, concerning this and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Now, what, what's going on here? N Nehemiah, as a good leader, senses the weight of responsibility. He knows that, that somebody has to be held reliable for or responsible for all the stuff that's happened, right? And he's the guy. He's the governor of the land of Judah. And so he's saying, remember me, oh God. He, he's even asking for pardon. Don't wipe out my good deeds. I've done good. I, I've neglected. I, I've dropped the ball with responsibility, at least to appoint somebody else to carry the torch. Don't wipe out my good deeds. He turns to God again um, and prays. It's an, it's an act, like the way that he's, he's um, praying, it's, it's expressing an act of loyal love. These things that he's doing, that, that we see, it's an act of service to God, an act of loyal love to Yahweh. And then he goes on to the next thing, the issue of, of dishonoring the Sabbath. So the same pattern happens. Nehemiah sees this, he's stunned by it. Um, he sees them doing it. He warns the merchant. See this in verse 15. He warned them on the day when they sold food. Hey, you shouldn't be doing this. And then in verse 17, he says, he goes and he confronts them. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath? He confronts them in their sin. He, he's not gonna let them sweep it under the rug and keep on going in an unfaithful direction. And then as he confronts them, he sets up safety parameters. He locks the gates in verse 18. He, he later on posts guards in verse 22 and he warns the merchants, right? These foreigners who are coming in and the Israelites who are participating, he warns them in verse 21 saying, but I warn them, and I said to them, why do you lodge outside the wall? Because he, he shut the gates and everybody's just camping out outside the city gates. Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, 
I will lay hands on you. Right? A man of God saying, I'm about to throw fists, guys. And then he commands the Levites to prefer themselves to guard the gates. We see this, this swell of zeal for God and his house again compels his action. And then he goes again in prayer. Rem- remember me. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me, again, he feels responsible, spare me according to the greatness of your hased, your steadfast love, your covenant love. And then the fourth thing, he addresses the generational unfaithfulness that we saw back in verses 23 and 24. And what he does in verse 27, he calls this not just an evil. We've seen uh, this, this label of evil applied to some previous things, but he calls this a great evil. He calls it a treacherous act against God. Look at verse 27. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? Nehemiah looks out and sees that God's people are betraying God's goodness, that they're they're squandering the heritage of faith that God desires to give them. And they're doing this by friendliness to idol worshipers, to to synchronizing, to to compromising just a little bit and adapting to to fit kind of what, what they want a little bit. And what happens is over time, those compromises get bigger and bigger and bigger and it provokes God's people to lose their way that they stumble into sin. And before you know it, they're full on in rebellion against God and forsaking the Lord their God, the God of the covenant. And Nehemiah points out that that this isn't the first time this happened. In fact, Israel's story is loaded with scenarios of this where where the faithfulness of God's people has been compromised by um, disobeying God and marrying foreign women. We saw this, um, uh, Esau and Jacob is a perfect example of this, again, in our Bible reading from this past week. But Nehemiah says, listen, this same thing happened to King Solomon, who happened to be the wisest person, second wisest person next to Jesus, who ever walked the earth. And if it could happen with King Solomon, where he's marrying foreign women and and they're, they're swaying him into sin and rebellion, then it will, it's not a question of if, but when will that happen to them as well? And what we see is a strong response from Nehemiah, probably shocking in a lot of ways. We see Nehemiah's anger swell in verse 25. So at first he was confronting people and then offering some corrections. But now we see in verse 25, and I confronted them and I cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God saying, you shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. He's not happy. <laughs> He's not. When's the last time you saw a happy person yanking hair? Now, he's not doing this to the women, all right? He's going after the men. It's important to remember this. Nehemiah is not a woman beater. He's going to the men who have forsaken the way. That's where his beef is. 
His beef isn't with the pagan women. His beef is for the men who are called to be faithful to God and have forsaken their calling. And then there's the last episode. For the, for the desecration of the priesthood, Nehemiah chases the guy off, like runs him out of town, verse 28. Again, we see this pattern of action and prayer. Um, verse 30 through 31, Nehemiah cleanses the priesthood. He reestablishes the priesthood as it ought to be. Only qualified people can fulfill the office of priest. Just as with a pastor, only biblically qualified people can fulfill the office of elder or pastor or deacons. Nehemiah cleanses the priesthood, reestablishes the duties and, and the ritual and works of the temple, and then Nehemiah prays again, but this time his, his prayer is a little bit different. This time he prays against the evildoers who are unrepentant. Verse 29 he says, remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. He's saying, don't, don't let this mockery of God go unchecked. Don't let the sin keep going on in a way that will only compound more and more brokenness, Lord. Do something about it. Remember their evil. Hold them accountable. And then we see this prayer in verse 31 as he wraps it up. He says, I provided, uh, oh, remember me, this last one, very last line. Remember me, oh my God, for good. Now, the, the thing, we're gonna work through some of this stuff that's a little bit tricky here in a second, but the thing that's driving Nehemiah, you have to know this, the thing that is compelling Nehemiah to do, to say uh, the things that he's done and said is a desire to hear from the Lord is God, well done, good and faithful servant. Nehemiah is not trying to protect his own agenda. Nehemiah is not trying to keep his own power uh, in, in his grips. Nehemiah is trying to honor the Lord and do right by God in all things. He wants to hear like, like we should want to hear. Well done, good and faithful servant. Now, you see his desire, you see the things that he's done, and it leaves us scratching our head a bit, right? Especially when he's starting to like threaten to throw fists and, well, I, I might understand a little bit about that. Um, where he's pulling people's hair out, I haven't yet done that. Um, but we're, we're wondering, what, what do we make of this? Was, was Nehemiah out of line? Did he get too angry? Did he, did he do, in trying to correct evil, did he act evilly? I mean, did he really have to chase people off? Was violence really necessary? The hair pulling, the whole thing? And it's oftentimes, we, we look at a passage like this, uh, and, and if you are more bothered by Nehemiah's actions than you are the evil and rebellion that he's addressing, you are not seeing things in proportion. 
Because the evil that God's people are doing here, the, the covenant breaking, forsaking, is the worst sin. Now, I'm not trying to justify Nehemiah. I'm not saying that he did it all right. Like this is not, I don't think this is a pastoral template of how to deal with, with confrontation and, and, and rebellion. I don't think that's the way. Like Nehemiah is a sinner too. Like it, it's, it's possible for Nehemiah to operate in his flesh and mess up and need to repent of certain things. But the question is, who has done the greater sin here? Who is most clearly in the wrong? It's the people of Israel. God's people have flagrantly been rebelling. And Nehemiah, even though his his actions may be off kilter a bit, Nehemiah's aim is to call people to return to the Lord, their God, who is full of steadfast love. In fact, the sins that that Nehemiah is calling his people to turn from, these sins are all too common today in the church, right? If we were operating in the Old Testament era, it probably would be fitting to have an Old Testament preacher come out here and start, you know, instead of shaking hands at the door, start pulling on beards a little bit. Like, get it together, guys. But that's not how the church works. But these sins still linger in the church today. Now, as as sin gets addressed, as is healthy to do for a church, one one of the the dynamics um, that that marks a healthy church is godly confrontation. When your brother, Matthew 18, when your brother sins against you, go to him and tell him their sin so you may win them over, right? If you see your brother trapped in sin, restore him gently. And so there is, there is a precedent to go and confront sin where you see it. It's a good, healthy marker of a healthy church. But as we do that, as we step up boldly to confront brothers and sisters lovingly and, and graciously, oftentimes the confronter the one who's trying to call their brother or sister to faith and repentance, who's, who's calling them back to the way of righteousness, gets dismissed or brushed off. Why is that? Well, a lot of times it's because we don't like the way they handled it. We, we, don't, we don't like when they handled it. We don't like how they said what they said. We don't like the tone of what they said. Well, it could have been this. That would have been better. And we use these things, we use the ideal situation to dismiss and discredit the message, the substance that God wants to address with a sinner who he wants to restore. This happens all the time in the church. And it's this weird thing where the one who is in sin, who is most in need of repentance, the one who's really in the wrong points the finger at the one who's trying to love their brother and say, you didn't do it right. You didn't love me well enough. I think this is a, a very unfortunate thing. I think it shows a lot of pride, a lack of humility, not understanding the covenant community as a means of grace for God to confront sin not to make us feel bad and leave us in that spot, but to lead us to a place of reconciliation and restoration where we would flourish the way that God has called us to in the gospel. 
as soon as we start dismissing confrontation, as soon as we, the prophetic voice of God, that prophetic provocation from the Holy Spirit, as soon as we start shuffling that off, the call of righteousness, the call to be holy as our Father in, in heaven is holy, starts to get put in the corner. Confrontation is necessary for gospel ministry. In fact, you can say all of Jesus' ministry was confrontational. All of it. I mean, someday we'll do this. This is a sermon series I got brewing in the back of my, man, my mind, but it, it uh, goes along like the hard sayings of Jesus, going through a gospel account, all the hard things that Jesus said. And you would be surprised how many hard things there are that Jesus said to different kinds of people. And one of the scenarios that, that always sticks out, like it just doesn't fit. If we, if we got a, a caricature of Jesus, that's this like, well, first of all, blue-eyed, white, flowy, golden-haired Jesus, which is not what Jesus looked like. The super soft and gentle and, and effeminate version of, of the, the Messiah who, who never crosses people's uh, uh, minds, who, who never pushes back on wrong. If, if that's our version of Jesus, then scenarios like Jesus driving out the merchants in the temple doesn't fit with that category. We're left like discarding one or the other. Either Jesus was this tough mamma jamma who shows no mercy, or he's this soft and squishy guy. Like there's no way to hold both of those two things together. Based on Jesus' response to the temple, there is precedent for the way that Nehemiah reacted. In this, in this episode where Jesus drives out the money collectors and, and chases away, he, he actually takes time. This is, baffles people. Um, takes time to make a whip to go, right, as he's driving people out. This wasn't a reactionary thing. This wasn't Jesus flying off uh, the handle, losing his mind for a second. And I don't think Nehemiah, though he may have got carried away, I don't think Nehemiah's indignation is too far off the mark of righteousness. Because what this tells us about Nehemiah is that he shares a trait with Jesus, that he has zeal for the house of the Lord. Nehemiah is invested. He cares deeply about God and his people. In fact, I would say that Nehemiah's zeal for the Lord and his house and his people far outpaces the rebellion of the people. That's the kind of leadership that the church needs today. Men, leading your families well. You care more about doing what is right by God than bending and placating to all of the things the culture is telling you to do. You are single-minded, just like Nehemiah, going back to that deal. What do you say? Oh, I can't find it now. I'm gonna find it though. Single-minded, utterly frank, and godly through and through. That's the kind of men that the church needs while still maintaining the heart of Christ. Compassionate, loving, Motivated by love for God and for others. Those are the kinds of men, self-ruled men, ruling righteously and wisely and courageously. Now, when we come to this passage, we have to realize that the issue in this story as it comes to a conclusion is not Nehemiah's absence. It's, the problem with the story isn't that Nehemiah was gone. 
The, sto- the problem of the story isn't Nehemiah's unorthodox uh, leadership tactics. The problem in the story is that the hearts of the people are turned toward wickedness. Even after they've seen all the mighty works of God, the fact that they rebuilt the city in 52 days, they've seen the wonders of God, they, they still are people who are prone to wander. You know that hymn? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. See, the problem is in the hearts of men. They're bent toward evil. That even with the best leadership, they're still gonna drift in that direction. You're still gonna see entropy. Now this leads us to question here. We, the, the story ends pretty abruptly. Like the, the last prayer is just it. That, and we don't know. Did they figure it out? Did they get back on track? We don't know. I mean, we kind of do know as you continue reading. You've, <laughs> that didn't go well, guys. It didn't go well. Things started collapsing. Right? Nehemiah dies. The whole thing derails. The city of Jerusalem becomes taken over again, this time by the Greeks, the Romans. Nehemiah can only hold the line for so long, right? As soon as he gives up his last breath, who knows? Who's going to step up? Who's going to fill the vacancy? What the people of God need is a new and better Nehemiah. Somebody carry the torch. Not just a confronter, but a leader who can change hearts. See, that's something that no man can do. I can't, listen, I, as much as I want to be like a, a leader uh, like Nehemiah, I cannot change hearts. Men cannot change hearts. You can't change your own heart. They need a, 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 a leader like Nehemiah, not just a guy who can govern well, and provide good and godly legislation, which a society needs. A society needs to be rightly ordered by the best laws, and the best laws are God's laws. They can't just make vows that, that are sort of half-hearted. The people need a change of heart. They need a leader who is with them, a leader who won't leave them or forsake them. A leader that that incites joy and excitement and just a delight in righteousness. The collapse of the story of Nehemiah stokes our longings for this kind of a leader. See, this is what the ending of Nehemiah is meant to be. It's meant to leave you hungry for a better leader. Because if things end with chapter 12, there is no need for Jesus if, if humanity figures out how to do it and do the whole song and dance and, and keep the rules, and there's no need for Jesus. No Jesus, no Holy Spirit. No Holy Spirit, no mission. See, Jesus is the leader that Nehemiah points us toward. Jesus is the leader that gives God's people an even better story, a more glorious story. See, Nehemiah was focused on uh, throwing up stones, brick and mortar, the infrastructure. I mean, he was doing good stuff with society stuff, like reforming people to the word of God. But what Jesus does is says, I've got a bigger mission than that. Not just one city, the whole cosmos. The whole cosmos full of the glory of the Lord. See, Jesus not only confronts, he does confront. In fact, it's a grace 
when Jesus confronts you. You might be feeling confronted right now. It is a grace to be received when the Lord brings his confrontation to us, but he also calls us to obey him and to obey him by faith in him. Right? The obedience that Jesus calls us to is a product of a faith, a heart disposition that trusts him through thick and thin. Only Jesus has the power to transform hearts. Only Jesus can get to the foundational issue with the people of God and course correct like Nehemiah did. In fact, let me take you to Ezekiel here, 36, to, to close this out. You, you may be familiar with this passage. Ezekiel 36, 26. Actually, I'll go to 24. He says, I will take you from the nations and gather you from all the countries and bring you into your own land. Okay, check, he's done that. They're in Jerusalem. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean from your uncleanliness and from your idols I will cleanse you. Right, last week, purification of the people. Check. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone, the heart that is bent towards wickedness. I will remove it from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey all my rules. You shall dwell in the land that I give your fathers and you shall be my people and I will be your God. And look at this again, that the uncleanliness bit comes back up in, in verse 29 and I will deliver you from all your uncleanliness and I will summon the grain and make it abundant to lay no famine upon you. I will make the fruit of the tree and the increase of the field abundant. Again, going back to, to the, uh, the whole robbing God, withholding from God. He's pouring out his blessings. You see these connections being made? That you may never again suffer the disgrace of famine among the nations. Then you will remember your evil ways and your deeds that were not good, and you will loathe yourselves for your iniquities and your abominations is not for your sake that I will act. It is not for your sake that I will act, declares the Lord. God, let that be known to you. Be ashamed and confounded for your ways, O house of Israel. Thus says the Lord God, on that day, on the day I will cleanse you from your iniquities, I will cause the cities to be inhabited and the waste places shall be rebuilt. And the land that was desolate shall be tilled instead of being desolation that it was in the sight of all who passed by. And they will say, this is the land that was desolate has become like the Garden of Eden. And the waste and the desolate and the ruined cities are now fortified, inhabited. And then the nations that are left around you shall know that I am the Lord. I have rebuilt the ruined places and replanted that which was desolate. I am the Lord. I have spoken, and I will do it. See, this, this is what Jesus, our great and fearless leader, does. He, he replaces, first he replaces our hearts. He takes the heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh that beats, that has the, the commands of God written on them, that is eager to obey and honor God. Instead of being bent towards wickedness, we are inclined to love the Lord our God. 
And the way that this transaction happens of getting the, the, the new heart, of, of dislodging the old heart, is that Jesus goes to the cross. He absorbs the guilt, the shame, the iniquities, the, the desolation of the broken people upon himself. See, instead of Jesus coming to us and wanting to throw fists, instead of Jesus coming to us and saying, I'm gonna curse you, instead of Jesus coming up to us and saying, I'm gonna yank your beard out, Jesus takes the affliction upon himself that we deserve. Jesus was beaten for you. Jesus' beard was pulled from his face. Jesus was mocked and ridiculed by man and condemned in the flesh by God to give you a new heart. Who doesn't want to follow a leader like that? A leader that says, I'm going to lay my life down so that you can live life to the fullest. See, without new hearts, without, without Nehemiah 13, we would be right back where they were. Without those, the, the redemptive provision of God, we would be right back in the thick of Nehemiah 13. And while the church still struggles with sin and waywardness and rebellion, the church is being sanctified. The good work that God has begun, he will see through. In Christ Jesus, we have a leader who takes us where we cannot go ourselves. He gives us a mission, not just to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. He says, first he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me, right? You wanna talk about a leadership claim right there? All authority in heaven and earth belongs to Jesus. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded. So Jesus lays out the mission. Go baptize folks and get them to obey. Teach them what it looks like to follow Jesus in all of life. Then he leaves us with a promise in the Great Commission. For I am with you until the end of the age. See, Jesus is with his bride right now. His spirit is among us. The spirit in you and me is compelling us to obedience and faith and building, rebuilding the ruins for the glory of God. We've been called to a big task, to rebuild the ruins or to advance the kingdom of heaven. We can't do it alone. We can't do it in our own power. That's why God had to give us a new heart through his spirit. And so we see that the leader we need can not only reform a society according to the, the morals and the standards and the function, the leader we need needs to be able to reform hearts, to change hearts, which is why we need Jesus. Jesus is working today in the church. He will not stop until his work is done. And as Jesus works on us, brings us to faith and repentance, he enhances his glory among the saints. He shines what he's really like so that people will see it, so that we would be a people building, but a people on mission for God's glory because he's worth it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace and kindness to us in Jesus, that he, that you are the leader that we most need. 
We need you so badly, Lord, that, that without you, we would fall apart. Without you, the church ceased to exist. In fact, Colossians 1 says that you are preeminent. You are holding all things together. You are the head of the body, the church. So this morning, we come to confess our need for you, Lord, that, that we need in order to live the way you've called us. Our hearts have to be changed. And you have replaced our hearts of stone with a heart of flesh that beats after you. Lord, please reform our hearts more and more and more. Sanctify us so that we would follow you all of the days of our life, that we would give ourselves to your mission. We ask this for the good of our city and your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray, 